When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, welcome back into the Nick Bob Podcast. I'm taping this. It is Father's Day. It is about 2 o'clock. Happy Father's Day to everyone out there as a father of three. It's crazy that I have three kids, but it's the greatest thing in the world, being a dad to my three little kiddos. It's fantastic. Also, special uh, Happy Father's Day shout-out to my dad, Richie Baugh, former Fremont Tiger, the Fremont Flyer, former Husker split-in wing back, 1972 to 1974. Uh, People, my dad was a bad boy, man. He was he exact kind of football player that I love to watch. Great running instincts back in the day. You know, with those with the wing backs that they let in inside reverses, reverses, different things like that. He he was a running back a little bit in high school as well. But great running instincts, great hands, great as a great as a punt and kickoff return man. Nothing as I watch these Husker football games with my dad now, as Nebraska's special teams has eroded to where it's at, nothing drives him more crazy than like bad punt returning. Like people that won't catch it, won't make move. Like just it like kills his soul. It's it's uh it's it's kind of a hilarious to watch these games with him but man he he was uh he, he was he was he could play man he could really really play and then obviously as my dad he never missed a game of mine like ever you know when people say that like oh my dad never missed a game like I cannot remember a single game like I'm talking from a YMCA spirit Saturday afternoon game like never missed a game of mine so it's shouts out to my dad now he's a soft grandpa which is just hilarious happy father's day to everyone out there uh, so let's get to the pod. Let's get it rolling because I uh, we got a two-topic pod on deck for you, and then I'm out because I got some golf I got to go play with my dad. It's my first round of the year, so I have a nice built-in excuse to play bad, which is which is always good. But two topics on deck today. The Husker football mystery metrics. I got some thoughts on that. And then it's NBA draft week uh, coming up on Thursday. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get into the draft. I'm going to talk a little bit about Bryce McGowans, who's kind of a projected first rounder of various uh, mock drafts that you read. And then I want to get into how I just how I see the draft and di- uh, the top of it different from everyone else. Uh, so that's what's on on tap for today. But let's get into so that the Husker football mystery metrics because it was it's an interesting story that's been uh, really it's been it's it's been around for a handful of months. But then there was another development within the mystery metrics story. So obviously Nebraska and Trev Alberts used used the term metrics to describe the conditions that Scott Frost and even Hoiberg uh, have to meet to get their original contracts back after being on the hot seat and then having to restructure their contracts and and getting brought back. And so that naturally led people from the outside going, okay, I wonder what those mystery metrics are. What are these metrics that they got to meet? What is that? To the point where USA Today, USA Today is suing Nebraska over not releasing the specific metrics in the contract. I mean, obviously there's the freedom of information stuff where this is a, a you know, these are the highest paid state employees and, you know, you can, you can 
bring those different things to light in contracts, all those sorts of things. And so that's kind of being hung up right now. But the USA Today is suing Nebraska over not releasing what is in these specific metrics. Um, so here's here's my take on all this stuff. Am I interested in what was discussed and laid out between Trev Alberts and Scott Frost for for expectations and metrics next year? Yes. Obviously, that is pretty juicy, interesting information. But I'll say this. The world is much more gray than it is black and white. People want to think life and decisions are black and white and and easy to kind of see. But the truth is, there's usually a lot of gray. And I get the temptation to try to outline something on the front end of a number that Scott Frost has to get to for him to come back and, in this case, reinstate his original contract. I get that. But as I've thought about this whole situation more, both from from a lot of different, from a lot of different perspectives, both from Trev's perspective, the fan base's perspective, I've found myself kind of waffling back and forth between hoping Trev laid out a concrete number of wins for the metric and hoping we can find out what that number is, within also hoping the opposite is true. And you may be going, what? I've just, I've found myself thinking, man, if I'm Trev, we all know this is a layered, nuanced, very gray situation right now for Nebraska. Do you really want to paint yourself into a corner with a concrete number or metric on this whole thing. And what would make that even more challenging is if that concrete number or metric gets made public. Because then you've really painted yourself into a corner as a decision maker. I just continue to look at the last handful of 8 to 10 years of Nebraska football And I've come to realize two dueling things. How misleading a final number of wins in a season can be, but then also how ridiculous it is to make this to be about anything else other than a number of wins at the end of the season. I know in the moment, 2016, Mike Riley won nine games. Like, think about this. 2016, Mike Riley won nine games. I didn't believe in the direction of the program. 2014, Bo Pelini won nine games. I didn't believe in the direction of the program. 2018, Scott Frost won four games. I believed in the direction of the program. And here's what I can't quite figure out. With the benefit of hindsight, I can't figure out if those feelings were ridiculous or not. After five straight losing seasons with no bowl trips, complaining about a nine-win season kind of feels totally absurd, doesn't it? Having gone five straight years, no bowl games, three and nine, four and eight, doesn't it kind of sit there and, and don't you aren't you kind of embarrassed like looking at an old photo of yourself in a ridiculous outfit or something like that or or something you some thing you were into back in the day like doesn't it almost make you cringe that like sometimes I think about the fact that I was on the radio in 2014 I was like you gotta fire Bo but he's won nine games you fire him like it's part of me that kind of cringes at that stuff 
there's a part of me that feels like we've drifted too far away from black and white, a.k.a. wins and losses, and too much into the gray of how something feels and how something looks. Because the beauty of sports is there is a scoreboard. We keep score. It's a bottom line business. You are either winning or you are losing. That should almost always, always be your guide for decisions. But then the flip side, the flip side of this is, doesn't it kind of feel hypocritical if at one point you argued for Bo Pelini to be fired and oftentimes had to look past the record to state your case? Well, I know he's winning nine games, but he should be fired to then now argue that Scott Frost should be fired and solely look at the record to state your case. I don't care about anything else. He hasn't been to a bowl game. Because like it or not, what I just said there likely applies to a lot of you out there listening and your line of thinking. It's okay. So that's the beauty of this podcast. Just admit it. Just admit it. Talk things out. Say I was wrong about this, or I'm conflicted about this, or yeah, I felt I used this, and I'm hypocritical because now I'm thinking this, right? Doesn't it feel, I'm going to repeat that, doesn't it feel hypocritical if at one point you argued for Bo Pelini to be fired and oftentimes had to look past the record to state your case, to then now argue that Scott Frost should be fired and solely look at the record to state your case? Again, like it or not, you can squirm all you want listening to this. Kind of, Did I not kind of describe your line of thinking a little bit? I bet at one point you were drinking beers with your buddies. It was like, I don't give a shit that he's won nine games a year and blah, blah, blah. And, and he's gone to multiple conference championship games. Bo Pelini's got to be gone. I bet, I bet you caught yourself thinking that, saying that. And then you might also be that guy like, oh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't care about anything else. He, Scott Frost isn't winning games. I don't care about the record. It's just all, I say all that to say this. If I'm Trev, I just want to call him Trev instead of Trev Alberts. I need to work on that. If I'm Trev Alberts. I don't know if putting a concrete, tangible number on things to hold the fate of Frost is wise. I just don't know if it is. Because, But the problem is, at the same time, it's year five and winning has to take precedent at some point. If I'm, if I'm the fan base... Do you want, like, uh, think about this now. You're a Husker fan, probably listening to this. Do you want a hard and fast concrete number attached to the fate of Frost this year? With the understanding of what the last eight to ten years have been like on how not all nine-win seasons are created equal, not all seven-win seasons are created equal, right? Even if you're you're Scott Frost, do you want a tangible number you got to get to? Because I honestly, I could see some coaches preferring that. I could see as a competitor, you say, just tell me what I need to get to and let's just uh, let, let me attack it. I don't know. A lot of different perspectives and vantage points and things to consider with this thing. 
Again, that's what I'm saying. It's very gray. Sometimes we want to make it very black and white. It's very gray. So when I read about the unknown metrics and then the USA Today suing to try to make those metrics public, I just don't know how I feel about all that. I guess what I do know is this. I want Trev Alberts to have the freedom to make a decision without being tied down by anything. There's a part of me that wants Trev Alberts to have the flexibility to make whatever decision he wants when that time comes. And listen, I'm sure some of you guys are saying, Nick, come on, man, you're just a Frost supporter. Come on, man, what are you talking about? And it's really not about that. It goes back to what I talked about where I just feel like things are oftentimes more gray than black and white. And because of that, I could see this decision landing in that gray area for Trev. So I know I know nothing about the legal component to this as it pertains to the USA Today lawsuit. I, I don't I can't speak to any of that stuff. I don't know. The closest I get to knowing anything about law is better call Saul. <laughs> so no, I don't know. All right. I, I just want and hope that. Trev has the freedom and flexibility to make whatever decision he feels is best for the program next year. And for that to happen, even though I'm very interested in what these mystery metrics are, there's a part of me that kind of hopes we don't find out and they remain something kind of between Trev and Frost. Because again, how many of you heading into last season, if someone would have said, Okay, just throwing it out there. If Frost were to go three and nine, fire him, keep him, you'd be like, oh, fire. If he goes three and nine, he's out of here. Well, unfortunately, that three and nine landed in the gray area. Now, I know three and nine, black and white, but if you watch it, it landed a little bit of a gray area. So, so I, I get that you know the reason contracts exist at times is just because you you got to put things in writing to make them black and white. I just think sometimes big decisions are are a little more gray than you want to make them out to be. Like, do I feel comfortable being like he's got to get to seven wins? Eh, I mean, I don't know. I don't know about that. He's got to be at five wins before October, whatever it is. Where the, I don't know. Because, again, if we've learned anything over the last eight to ten years, there's kind of two dueling narratives, dueling things going at them, go, going in my mind at least. How misleading a final number of wins can be, but then how, all, how ridiculous it is to make it about anything else other than a final number of wins. Just kind of where I'm at with it as I've watched this mystery metric thing kind of unfold especially with this USA Today lawsuit it's part of me that kind of hopes nothing comes out public I just I don't want to see people get painted into a corner that's where I'm at with it the Nick Bob podcast is brought to you by Pella Windows and Doors and I want to talk to you guys about energy efficiency and if you go onto Pella's website right now you look at it and how about this one two three four five different types of windows or doors 
by Pella, won the Energy Star 2020 Most Energy Efficient Award. That's big-time stuff right there. And they achieved that in a couple of waves. They got insulated glass, which slows the heat transfer, keeping your home at a more comfortable temperature. They got types of low-E glass, which is a glass coating that has been optimized for your climate. They got triple pane glass, which you can upgrade to for increased insulating airspace. And within all of that, one of the keys is proper installation, which is key for window and doors to perform at their best. And you know the Pella experts are excellent at that. Bottom line, energy efficiency matters in making your home more comfortable. And Pella windows and doors are at the top of the line when it comes to energy efficiency. Check them out online, PellaOmaha.com. That's PellaOmaha.com. All right, let's shift gears to hoops. Um, So NBA draft is this week. And I'll be real honest with you guys. I've... I'm, this is my new thing. I love being honest with you guys on this podcast. Because this is almost embarrassing what I'm about to tell you. I sat down. I had an entire three, maybe four pages written out of my thoughts on the top of the NBA draft and blah, 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 all that stuff. But I could feel as I was writing it. I mean, I wrote it all out. I could feel as I was writing it, and even as I was finishing, I was finished with it, some didn't quite sit right because I didn't fully believe it, what I, what I even wrote down. And, and what it is is this. You see, the, sometimes the draft, the NBA draft, NFL draft, whatever, the draft can be the ultimate example of groupthink. Meaning when a consensus, a consensus can take hold and it almost becomes a thing where other people chime in and have to have the same opinion because, well, everyone else thinks this, so it must be true. Right? All right, I want to talk about the draft. Well, what's this mock draft say? All right, this is one, this is two, this is three. Okay. All right, what about this one? One, two, three. Okay, all right. And listen, sometimes things are consensus for a reason, because it's the truth. But again, so, but I don't, I just don't know if sometimes the draft. It, it's kind of scary to put yourself out there, like you. But you do this long enough. I mean, I've been doing this for thirteen years now, being behind a mic and and giving my take and opinions on different things. You're going to be dead wrong on a lot of shit. But sometimes it's it's just easier to go with the the consensus because hey, listen, you're not going to get you're not going to get crushed for being way wrong on something. And so you look at it, the consensus that I'm talking about centers around the top three picks in this draft. Literally, basically every single mock draft you find, and there are a ton of a ton of them now. Basically, every single mock draft you find has the ta- the same top three players at, at, in one, two, three. And I was ready to write up a take that I agree with the top three and then hash out the order. But you know what? I don't agree with the top three projected picks. So everyone's top three prospects in some order are Jabari Smith out of Auburn, Chet Holmgren from Gonzaga, and Paolo Bancaro from Duke. That is 99.9% consensus top three in almost every mock draft you find. And I guess I'm here to say that I'm the 0.1%. Because I think the two best players in this draft are Jaden Ivey from Purdue and Ben Matherin from Arizona. And here's the thing. When I say that, when I say I like those two guys the most, Ivey and Matherin, that doesn't necessarily mean I don't like Jabari Smith, Paulo Bancaro, and Chet Holmgren. I do. Now, I do have I have concerns with those three guys. But I just like Ivy and Matherin more. 
So that's the first, like, the reason I like those guys more mainly is because that's where the NBA's at right now. You just turn on the NBA, you watch the playoffs, you watch the... The NBA is just littered with versatile playmaking athletic creators that are about 6'5 to 6'8, 6'9, long wings, because that's what wins in the NBA. And Ivy and Matherin fit that. The two best players I saw in person last year were Jaden Ivy and Ben Mather and Ben Mather of Arizona. Period. So here's here's how my my rankings would would spit out. Honestly, and this is where I'm kind of I'm I'm, I'm going there, but I'm not really going there because, like, honestly, Jaden Ivy, Ben Matherin are like one A, one B to me. Like you, to me, flip a coin. Either one of those guys, if, if like gun to my head, if I had to lean one way, I'd put Jaden Ivy as number one. I think Jaden Ivy is probably the best player in this draft, but I think Ben Matherin's right there. So let me talk about Ben Matherin first. Again, I think he's arguably the best player in this draft. There are times where I think he's slightly more polished than Ivy, but it's close. There are times I think Matherin's just a little tighter with the ball, although Jaden Ivy has more assists, but he also has more turnovers. I like Ben Matherin's shot a little more right now, but they're both similar shooters, both in uh, mechanics and percentages and how they get their shots. But Matherin's a little bigger. Matherin's about 6'6 with a 6'9 wingspan. Ivy's about 6'4 with about a 6'7 wingspan. But very, very, very similar. Matherin's maybe a, a smidge, a smidge bigger. But man, I love I loved Ben Matherin on film. And then seeing him in person when he was at I did the game Arizona at Illinois, I was blown away. He has a great motor. He is a Big-time athlete, extremely athletic. He's got a very smooth shooting stroke. Really, really gets out, runs the floor. He's excellent coming off screens, pin downs, handoffs. Good read, good, a good guy that reads those situations well, uh, reads those situations at a high level. And everyone loves NBA comparisons. To me, I look at him, I look at Ben Mather, and I see like, Victor Oladipo with the Pacers type type guy, you could I even see at times a little Donovan Mitchell or or Jamal Murray ish. I think he's he's one of those kinds of guys. So, he, again, him one A one B him and Jaden Ivey, and then for Jaden Ivey, again, who I would I would I would probably say if I had to lean one way, I'd put Jaden Ivey one. I've told some people this. But in all my years of playing college basketball and then calling games on TV, so this is spanning almost 20 years, Jaden Ivey is the best athlete I've seen in person in college. Guys, I know we say, like, oh, this guy's a great athlete. This guy is freaky. It's it's almost like you're you're eyes don't believe what they see at times you're like whoa did someone hit fast forward real quick in in my brain like he's his athleticism it's jaw morant ish maybe not quite jaw level because jaw's like in the i mean jaw's one of the best athletes nba's really ever seen 
But when you think of like, he's like, when you think think of like John Wall, fast, Russell Westbrook, fast and explosive, John Morant, fast, explosive, like Jaden Ivey's right there with all those guys. John Wall, Russell Westbrook, John Morant, like he's, he is with all those guys in terms of his explosiveness. The NBA has the best athletes in the world, and Jaden Ivey will step on the floor and stand out from day number one. When he really bursts, like when he really pushes the gas, it's fucking incredible. And when he is in transition, when he's got you kind of backpedaling and he's coming at you, it is unbelievable to watch. Unbelievable. I called three Purdue games last year, so I saw him live three times and then obviously watched a ton of film. He's mind-blowingly explosive in person. Not only vertically, but I think it's almost the thing that it's more of the 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 straight line explosiveness. Like when he hits when he hits you with a hesitation and really changes speeds and gets to his top speed, it is jaw dropping. So again, transition, changing speeds, attacking the paint. Everything with Ivy starts there. I honestly think that's why when I talk about 1A, 1B, like why I'd kind of lean Ivy is just the the raw athleticism. There is something to you cannot think yourself with like this guy, the way this guy moves, runs, explodes on a basketball court is different than almost everyone else on earth. And again, he's what the NBA looks like now. Skilled, long, athletic, score, playmaker. And and think about this. At Purdue, and here's the thing, Matt Painter, I think, is an awesome coach. And he had to do what he had to do based on the roster he had. Because, you know, he's got these two great, pure five men in Zach Eady and Trevion Williams. What, are you going to not play them and not throw them the ball in the post? Come on, that's that's stupid. But you also got to take all that into consideration when you're also assessing Jaden Ivey. Because... Ivy was always on the floor with at least one of two old school 1970s, 1980s, 1990s centers in Zach Eady and Travion Williams. So the paint was always just a little clogged up, just a little. And you were always trying to, the center of everything they did centered around trying to throw the ball into him. Now they ran a bunch of shit for Ivy, Iverson cuts, pin downs, handoffs, where he would, you know, to get him going downhill. Right. And even in the Michigan game I called, they just went to, you know, some different actions to get him the ball and then get him a lane line ball screen at the top of the key with Dickinson in a in a pick and roll and he just went to work and took over the game. So but but a lot of what they did centered around their post guys and not necessarily Ivy. But to me, I I think about Jaden Ivy and you put him on the floor with four other shooters, put him on the floor with Brooke Lopez and then three other guys. That, that can space the floor. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So, again, Ivy's a little he, – he can be a little – sometimes he's so explosive and so fast that he can get a lot of control. It's almost like a, a sports car that's still trying to figure out – someone who's driving like a Ferrari doesn't know how fast it can go real quick. And they're like, oh, because he had 94 turnovers this year, and a lot of that's because he's almost too fast. But this guy, man, whew, him and Matherin, 
big-time athletes, smooth scorers, long. To me, they've, they're both young. They both took massive leaps. Both of them played in the, the, the FIBA, their under-19 teams with, uh, with Matherin's from Canada, and then obviously Ivy played for Team USA. They both took massive leaps from their freshman to their sophomore years. So they're both young. They're both improving. In terms of an NBA comp with with Ivy, it kind of the same thing as as uh, as Ben Matherin, I, Jamal Murray, Donovan Mitchell, then Ja Morant without kind of the vision, and he's not as good of a passer. He and but he's kind of got some John Wall in him. He's got some Russell Westbrook in him. But th- those, I'm sorry, you guys can. Throw this back in my face at some point down the road with how wrong I was. But I'm gonna at least I'm gonna go away from the consensus group thing, and I'm not doing that to to oh going against the grain, huh? No, I'm not. Some some people zig when everyone's zagging just for the sake of it. I'm not doing that. I just I think these are the two best players in the draft. What does the NBA look like? They look like Jaden Ivey and and Ben Matherin. That's what that's what they look like. I think Ben Matherin could even as I watch the finals, I'm like Ben Matherin a little Jalen Brownish. Mm. He's got some. He's obviously not. I mean, Jalen Brown's a bad. You know, he's shoot the guy's dropping thirty in finals games, right? Like, so he's got a ways to go. But like, similar, similar type guys, athletic, could attack in the rim. Brown's a little better at attacking the. It, Matherin's more probably a shooter. God, I love both. I just, I'll be real. I'm just being real with you guys. Those are the two best players I saw in person. Those are the two best players in this draft, in my opinion. So those, I'd go Ivy. They're one A, one B. I'd go Ivy one, Matherin two. And then when we get to the consensus three, this is where I'll have those other three guys. But here's here's the order I would put it. At number three, I'd put Paolo Bancaro. That size, six foot ten. He can play in the pick and roll. He can create. It's really impressive. Stop and really say it out loud. He's six foot ten and he can run pick and roll as the creator, as the ball handler. Like it is not too many dudes that can can do that. You know, like Lamar Odom could do it back in the day a little bit. And six foot ten, handling it like that. He was awesome in big spots at times in the tournament, especially in that Texas Tech game. But again, just the fact that you can put the ball in his hands and he can run pick and roll is really intriguing. Especially if you play if you play him at a small ball five, depending on what you want to do with him, it'd be a that'd be a scary look for some people. My my concerns with him would be he seems like a good athlete, not a great athlete. He's a good shooter right now, but not a great one. But we've seen at times guys just get better as a shooter when they get into the league. And what's weird is I look at him and I just don't know if, like, I don't know if I see a, I know this is weird, like, I don't know if I see just a ton of upside. I think he's got a very, very high ceiling, or very, very high floor, excuse me. Like, I have a hard time feeling like, you know who's a huge bust, Paulo Bancaro. Nah, I don't, I don't think so. I, he's not an overly impactful defensive player right now, but he is a safe pick. At 6'10", that kind of skill, that kind of feel, I also like that he played at Duke with a bunch of really you watch Duke and you just the more the further I get removed from the season. Now I thought Arizona was probably the best team and I saw and and 
they were my pick to win. But I, I think when, when it came right down to it, the three best teams in the country, to me, were Duke, Arizona, and... I, I mean, you could throw Kansas in there, but I'd maybe throw UCLA in there. But Kansas was just tough and peaked at the right time. But I guess what I'm saying is I like that Bancaro played with a bunch of really good players, and so he knew how to kind of... Bancaro's not going to... Some guys have to have the ball the whole game and take 20 shots to make an impact. He like I, I don't think he, he'll necessarily need to do that. So again, he'd be he'd be at number three for me. Don't know if I see like a first or second team All NBA guy in him, but again, I really like him. NBA comp, I'd say he's like a Lamar Odom, Chris Webber, but he's I don't think he's as good as Chris Webber. Better ball handler, like come off a pick roll, Chris Webber. Like Chris Webber's passing was more out of the post. I think Ben Caro's passing could come out of the pick and roll. But those that's how I'd see him. And then there's Jabari Smith. Great size, great shooter. Like, 6'10 and a great shooter. Probably the best shooter in the draft, which makes him incredibly valuable. So, you look at him and you kind of go, okay, at worst, you're getting a 6'10, young, pretty athletic, three-point shooter with upside. Good athlete. To me, he's just not as well-rounded as Ben Caro, in my opinion. He's probably a little better on defense. But in terms of other parts of his offensive game, I just pause a bit with him because he's not a great ball handler creator. That's a little bit of a hole in his game. So that kind of limits what he can be, at least initially. I just don't think you can put the ball in Jabari Smith's hand and run pick and roll. Now, you could you could put the ball in his hand and let him ISO, get mismatches in ISO, I suppose. But again, really good shooter. Six foot ten does feel like he's he is just scratching the surface. NBA comparison. I actually I like the Richard Lewis comparison. Now hopefully if you're picking him at number 4 or in some cases I mean I talked to the people that I've talked to said he's going to go number 1. I mean if you're you're hoping if you're picking a guy in the top 5 you're getting a better player than Richard Lewis. But I mean Richard Lewis at one point was a 100 million dollar player. So he, he's he's good, but I put him at four. Then at five, I'll reluctantly put Chet Holmgren here at the risk of utter ridicule for not having him in that top five. But I just don't know what to make of Chet. I just, I mean, he's mind-blowing at times, and he just doesn't really look like anything you've seen on the basketball court at times. Seven foot, incredibly long arms, great defensive instincts, good-looking three-point stroke, pretty darn skilled, the kind of guy that could get a rebound, push it himself, but man, he is skinny. His frame just gives me some concern. Dude is a straw out there. Really, really slight. I can't help but look at him and think, okay, is he Porzingis, but maybe a little more well-rounded and more impactful defensively? And listen, that's a that's a decent player. But I'd say right now he's not as good of a shooter as Porzingis is. It, but I will say he's obviously a more capable ball handler and rim protector than Porzingis is. And that that defensive length and shot-making combination is what you're banking on. Now, I've heard some people throw out the Evan Mobley comparisons, and I just don't – I don't think he's Evan Mobley. I, know, I don't think he's Mobley. I think Mobley's better. Mobley's bigger. 
I think Mobley's more mobile. Mobley's stronger, much stronger. And that's just it. His frame and his lack of strength would really concern me if he had to go play in an NBA game tomorrow. I mean, he would just get moved around. Now, don't get me wrong. I think he's a special talent. But here's the thing. At the end of the day, centers, five men, just aren't what win in the NBA now. That's not to say they don't have value. They absolutely do. Robert Williams has a lot of value. Kevon Looney has a lot of value. But in the lottery, if I'm if I'm dropping drafting the top five, I don't. I just I'd use as my guy as my guiding light. I would use wings six five to six eight six nine, three and D can create those. That's what wins in the NBA: athletic, versatile ball creators, can score, can guard multiple positions at that size. That's what wins in the NBA. And so, when in doubt, I would just use that as my blueprint. I've always kind of felt like you can find serviceable centers in the late first, second round, or free agency, in my opinion. I like Chet. Don't get me wrong. Don't make this out like, Ba hates Holmgren. No, no, no. I'm just a little lukewarm on on him, a little more lukewarm on him than than everyone else's. Get NBA comp Porzingis type guy, but more skilled, better defensively. God, I want to say Rudy Gobert, but he's done. He, Rudy Gobert is monster defensively, but that's the thing. Like Rudy Gobert can't be on the floor in an NBA playoff game right now. You're like, ah, I got to get him off the floor. DeAndre Ayton, really good player. I think DeAndre Ayton would kick Chet Holmgren's ass right now. Phoenix doesn't want to pay him. So it's hard. It's hard to get a sense of what to do with these these five these good centers. So they, that'd be my top five. So to me, I'd go you know one A one B Jaden Ivy Ben Matherin. I'd go if I had to pick a gun in my head, I'd go Jaden Ivy one, then Ben Matherin two, Paolo Bancaro three, Jabari Smith four, Chet Holmgren five. I. Even though if you wanted to talk me into sticking with the 6'5 to 6'9 wings instead of taking Chet, I'd entertain it. Here are some other guys I like. Now, before I get into uh, I got I got, shoot, like six, seven more guys that I like. I, full disclosure, and this is just, listen, you can be like, oh, I'll do some more homework. I, I've, I've never seen Shaden Sharp play since he didn't play at Kentucky. And then I haven't seen the G League Ignite or Overseas guys. I'm sorry, I'm not watching, you know. Polish basketball to what you know I'm not why I haven't seen those guys so these are all college dudes okay a few other guys I like obviously Keegan Murray out of Iowa uh unbelievable rise just I will say this I called a handful of Iowa games his freshman year so two years ago Garza's senior year and I remember saying this to to Fran McCaffrey I was like man Keegan Murray, as a freshman, would make one or two plays a game that you'd go, whoa, 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 whoa. what was that? That looked different. You know, whether it was like a drive baseline dunk, an offensive rebound dunk, a run, run the floor, change speed, like you'd be like, whoa, whoa. Like he is so, he just, he, he glides and he's fat. Like he's one of those guys, some guys are fast and they look like they're really laboring. Keegan Murray is like he's floating down the floor faster than everybody. What I love about Keegan Murray 
He's the kind of dude that can score 20 and you never have to run a play for him. Some guys, you have to try to, you have to manufacture them looks to get the ball for them to score. Not Keegan Murray. He can just get him in transition, find mismatches, early post-ups, crash the glass, offensive rebound put back, uh, get fouled. Like Keegan Murray just falls out of bed and knows how to score. So what I like about him in that regard is like you can put him in to an NBA game and you're not going to have to run a bunch of stuff for him to get him in the flow. He'll just play and naturally produce. So Murray's Murray's good player. Other guys, AJ Griffin out of Duke, get concerned with his he's a, he's been injured. So you get concerned about those guys that are already had the injury bug kind of bite him. Uh but Good, you know, six five, six six, creator, shot maker. Like I said, when in doubt, use that guide as your route. Six five to six eight, six nine, wing, versatile creators that can shoot, do a lot of different things. AJ Griffin's that. Malachi Branham fits in that mold. I called out of Ohio State. I called that game. Um, Ohio State played at Nebraska, and Branham had like 36 on Nebraska. It was his coming out party. And man, he just, he is smooth. Six, six, five, six, six, long wing, got better dramatically. It seemed like each game, you could just see him taking big steps. He's got long arms, good smooth shooting stroke. Got to where there were times with the game on the line. There's a game against Indiana late where uh, Chris Holtman put the ball in Branham's hands which to me is telling, over E.J. Liddell. He fits a lot of what the – he's almost like a Karis Levert kind of guy. Maybe not quite as good off the ball, but that kind of build. Ochai Abaji at Kansas. Uh, I mean, j- what can you say, man? Winner. Got better each year. You know what you're getting with him. 6'5", strong, great shooter. Really, really knows how to score. I will say he's not overly dynamic off the bounce. He's more of a catch-and-shoot guy or off a pin-down guy than he is like get him the ball and let him get busy like Jamal Crawford or something like that. Like He's not that kind of guy. But a guy that is well-coached, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't have an identity crisis. He's not going to look in the mirror and think like uh, – like there are times certain players look in the mirror and they, they don't see reality. Like, I'm the best player – like – I'm the best player on the floor. It's like I think Ochai would understand how to fill a role at the next level. Dalen Terry out of Arizona, 6'7", long, switchable, just Swiss Army knife guy. Not a he's not a great three point shooter, but I think it's more that there isn't a huge sample size. But like just a dude that you throw out onto the floor. He can guard a bunch of different positions. He can do a lot of different things. Like he's almost like a a Andre Iguodala-ish type of player. Tough. Does all the little things. Same thing as Jeremy Sohan. He's a little bit in that role too. He's bigger than Terry. 6'9". Can truly probably guard one through five. At this point, isn't a very good shooter. Uh, but maybe that could you know, get to where he's at least respectable. But man, he's just, he would be such an impactful, disruptive, def- disruptive defensive player. He's a dude out of Baylor that I, that watching him live, even in the game they lost to North Carolina, he popped to me. He looked, he was like, ooh, that guy looks like he's a pro. Johnny Davis out of Wisconsin, 
I'm not as high on Johnny Davis as maybe some other guys are, but Johnny Davis, in terms of a dude like, you know, in your second off-the-bench scorer creator on the on the wing, Johnny Davis could be that guy. Just go 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 create baskets. Go score. That's what Johnny Davis can do. He's another guy like Jaden Ivey, like Ben Matherin, took a huge leap from his freshman to his sophomore year, which you'd love to see. Um, so Johnny Davis, 6'5", 6'6", good mid-range shooter, just just has a knack for how to create his own shot, which matters. So those would be the dudes I like. Two, let me give you two sleepers real quick. The two sleepers I like, now both these guys could maybe be late first-round guys. Uh, Christian Brown from Kansas, tough, smart, competitive, um, winner, 6'5", six, 6'6", six, six, athletic wing. He can shoot. He can defend. He's got some fuck you to him. He's super confident. One of those guys that would the moment would never be too big for him. He's a dude that I think would would fit for a lot of teams. And then Christian Coloco from Arizona. If you're looking for value at the five, late first round, maybe in a second round, or if he slips that far, this is the kind of player that I'm talking about. Like, he was the Pac-12 Defensive Player of the Year. He's seven, he's seven feet, 7'5 seven wingspan, excellent rim protector, uh, lob catcher. He's, a, he's thin. He needs to put some weight on. But, like, I watched him. He, he gave Kofi Coburn a lot of problems in the game that I saw. And, again, Pac-12 Defensive Player of the Year. You're looking for a guy that is just going to pick, roll, lob, threat, rim protect. That's your dude, Christian Coloco. So there you go. It's interesting. Outside of Chet, I guess Jabari Smith, my sleeper Coloco, and Keegan Murray to a certain extent, everyone in my top 10 to 12 guys is like 6'4 to 6'8 wings. That's basketball now. That's what you want. Switchable guys, 3 and D, can create, guard multiple positions. That's what you want. Again, to me, you can kind of you can find sufficient centers later in the draft, or even sufficient point guard play later in the draft. And I, I heard might have been Bill Simmons and Rasilla were talking about this. But for my five man, like I don't want to pay a center big bucks unless they're Nikola Jokic or Joel Embiid. That's kind of like. I heard him say that's like that's kind of true. Unless you're Jokic or Embiid, I don't know if you want to spend a lot of your salary on your salary cap on on the five spot. That's why Phoenix is dragging their feet with Aiton. So again, to reiterate, best two players I saw in in person last year were Ben Mather and Jaden Ivey. The two best players in this draft to me, when I look and watch and study it all, I think is Jaden Ivey and Ben Matherin. Those guys are going to be really, really good pros. So there you go. As far as Bryce McGowan's. So I think if you've listened to me, like I've, I've, I was never as high on him as other people were. But I will, I will admit my biases in that I think sometimes I have a blind spot. It could be a little bit what my issue is with Chet Holmgren right now. Like I think I have a blind spot as a scout in terms of seeing past the moment or even like a year from now. And what I mean by that is like in my opinion, if I'm trying to – if I'm trying to win an NBA game tomorrow, to me, Bryce McGowan's isn't quite ready for that. A lot of the other guys I just named are. Just Bryce McGowan's isn't quite strong enough. He isn't quite good enough on defense. 
But here's the thing. If you like Bryce McGowan's, and this I can understand, you think about him two, three, four years down the road with some maturity, some strength, some growth, some buy-in into the little things defensively, et cetera, then, then you're talking about something. Because he is – there's always I've always kind of felt like when you when you t- look at players in the draft all that stuff there's a differentiator between a you're evaluating a player or a prospect. A player I'm thinking go help win a game today. A prospect I'm thinking about helping win a game down the road. There's just a little there's a little separator. And the one thing I'll say about Bryce McGowan's is he's he is a, in terms of a prospect, really intriguing prospect. I mean, the dude is still baby face. He's he's got a he's got like a an adolescent body. You know what I mean? Like he's he's not popped. Like Paulo Bancaro looks like he's a like his body's at a different stage, just from a maturity standpoint than Bryce McGowan's. And that's not just because of six ten versus six five. It's just Look at look at their bodies. Take their shirts off. You're like, one guy looks like he's still a teenager. The other one looks like it's a, almost a grown man. But what's interesting though is even despite being slight and skinny and not that strong, Bryce produced. And the one thing I'll say about Bryce McGowan's is he checked all the boxes of what you're looking for. Like I've talked about, six five, six six, long, good athlete. He's got a smooth shooting stroke. The other thing I like about him is he gets to the free throw line. He gets fouled. At one point, I think he ended up getting passed, but at one point he was leading the Big Ten. In early February, he was leading the Big Ten in free throw attempts per game. Even at his skinny little frame, he was getting fouled. So I can see how you project him down the road and like what you see quite a bit. And I, I also like that he, the one thing I'll give him, he was a, even though he started the year scoring, like the first two games, they he, they lost. Nebraska was didn't win, but they he was scoring. You know, twenty five, thirty a game. He, he was put up big numbers. But to me, he was a dramatically better player in in January, February, March than he was in November. Like he got, I, I like the strides he took during the year. His shot selection improved. I remember Fred Hoiberg talking about how he was he was lifting weights in the season and getting bigger and stronger. So you like that? You like that buy in. So there are definitely elements that are really intriguing with Bryce McGowan's, which is why he's a projected first-rounder. So we'll see where he ends up. Again, I see the talent. I see the upside. I just also see the weaknesses, and unfortunately those are in the areas that make it hard to think that he can play right away next year, if that makes sense. But I am excited to see where he goes how he improves, and and where he's at two, three, four years from now. No doubt about it. Can't wait for the NBA. A Huda Media Production.